multifaceted, multi-talented, multicultural. It's as if I'm having a hard time putting all of this into one person, and yet, Kavita Shah is naturally this, all her. Welcome to the Origen Podcast. I'm Pablo Aslan. In this episode, number six, we hear from Kavita Shah about her lifelong pursuit of knowledge and expression and how she manages to juggle both. We talk about the role of music in the community and of serendipitous ways to find yourself. Pull up a chair. She's got stories to tell. Kavita, I would say that if I've ever met an artist who I would not dare put a label on, that's you. Um, I think that it's been very interesting because we've spent some time in the Origen Collective talking about labels, and I see exactly why you're a member of Origen because you, uh, your sound and everything you do, everything about you is about no labels, no? It's a reflection of my life, you know? It's not just uh, taking a stand that I don't like labels or something like right. that, but what we sound like is the product of what we hear, And in my case, I've really had the benefit of hearing many different things from a very early age that comes out in whatever I do, even if I'm doing a more classical piece or a more folkloric piece or a more jazz piece, somehow the other parts come in. It's just really who I am. And I'm learning to own that and embrace that more rather than worrying about where it fits or what it is in terms of an external label. Right. And, and it seems like you, you've had a journey into that. You started as a, a sort of an ethnographer and, and, and a academic and you went from academic to a performance career, your, your undergraduate studies in academia and your graduate studies in performance. A lot of times I've, I've seen it happen the other way around. People start a performance career and then realize that they want the, maybe it's the safety or the predictability or something um, about academia. Although academics will probably laugh at me for talking about safety and predictability in their world as well. But you had a journey. Um, and why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey once you, you uh, went through your schooling? You know, music was always there from a very early age. I played piano from the age of five, and I sang in a professional children's chorus from the ages of 10 to 18, including singing at Carnegie Hall, Lincoln Center, multiple times a year, and traveling around the world. So I did have music at a very high level from an early age, but I was also the child of Indian immigrants. So pursuing music as a profession was not really on the table. It was a distant dream for me that I couldn't even utter, I think, until I got to college. Um, even though my parents have, and my family is very supportive and, and in many ways not traditional, but I think the idea of a career in the arts rather than pursuing it as a hobby or you know enjoying it, embracing it, was um, just not an option really for me. You know, and I was very interested in, in many different things too. The person I was going into college, I was very obsessed with Spanish literature and uh, Latin American culture and um, politics in general. 
uh, sorry, so I majored in Latin American studies at Harvard, and that was a great experience. I did everything from spent time in Cusco in Peru studying colonial architecture and colonial literature like El Inca Garcilaso de la Vega to eventually discovering Brazil and getting very deep into Afro-Brazilian folklore and tradition. And it kind of allowed me to do many different things under the umbrella of culture. There was a very strong foundation in literature and literary studies, but you could also take any class related to Latin America. So for me, that was history, music, anthropology, different types of cultural studies, art and architecture. So it was kind of this broad view of culture, understanding what culture means. And I think for me as an artist, having grown up, I grew up in the center of New York City and being the child of immigrants, just this idea of culture and culture as a nexus point, and then translating that eventually into music and understanding music as a nexus point for all these different identities and also politics, religion, and all these different parts of society to come together was really rich and I think very much a part of who I was. And I worked in journalism and I worked in human rights while I was trying to find my way back to being a professional musician. I pretty much knew what happened when I was in Brazil was I, I, I did research on the ground with this amazing Bloco Afro, a carnival group called Malé de Ballet. I spent a lot of time with people doing interviews. I played music with them. I would go to their rehearsals. And they did really amazing work because in a society that is predominantly black, Bahia is a city that is predominantly black, there are still a lot of issues with racism and cultural hegemony and messages of racism that are prevalent in everything from commercials you see to who owns and who runs the city. This very amazing group had its own elementary school on campus where they had control of the kind of messages that the kids were learning in terms of uplifting them and having positive messages about what it means to be black, what it means to be an Afro-Brazilian, what it means to be a member of the African diaspora. And in Carnival, this group would engage really whole families. So kids might be involved in the school and they might play in the kids group and you know, women might dance, uh, men might play in the percussion ensemble. It was a place for a very poor community to come together and celebrate their blackness. And the way they did that was in finding themes from across the diaspora. So one year, the theme of Carnival would be about South Africa and apartheid. One year, it would be about civil rights in the United States. One year, it would be about liberation in Angola. One year, it would be about um, celebrating um, a famous slave revolt leader in Brazil named Zumbi. So it was just an incredibly uplifting, positive experience. And there's no way you could say this is just about the music. The music is great and the music is interesting in and of itself, but it's so related to the culture and how people are living and what their immediate needs are. And it's filling this need. So this was a very rich experience for me. And I didn't know what it meant for me in terms of um, do I want to be on stage? Do I want to be behind stage observing this and writing about it? 
uh, or do I want to be directly involved in these political issues, maybe doing human rights work or other nonprofit work? But ultimately, I really felt conflicted when I came back to Cambridge and was writing the thesis because in the end, it was something that I felt, I don't know that anybody could understand this outside of the halls of academia. So I've gone to this place, I've had this really rich, amazing experience. These people have given me so much and I would love to be able to give them back something. I would love to be able to give them this thesis and say, look, this is, you know, and maybe they can put it on their shelf, but is it something that the average person <laughs> can read and understand and connect with, or is it really for an academic audience? And I think that was part of this feeling that I had that I wanted to be able to just communicate directly to people. And that's something that, you know, music offers and being on stage offers, that kind of direct communication. And in my case, I still continue to be informed by research and by doing interviews and, and, and trying to be as much as possible in touch with these roots, so to speak. I like the fact that anybody can sit there and you can connect with them in an instant. To me, that's where the transformative power is. That really is what drove me to, to be more on stage. talk about having an encounter with Sheila Jordan and yes. and how she it seems like she pushed you over the edge of, of all these decisions that you were trying to make I, I like to think I still would have found my way one way or the other but right at this crossroads in my life when I was precisely trying to make this decision and I was not doing as much music because I was working and it, it was very demanding I got on the subway one morning and, you know, the doors opened and Sheila Jordan was sitting right in front of me. <laughs> and, you know, I had been, I, I mean, I was, I, I was a jazz musician and I knew who she was and I had even been looking for her. Um, someone recommended I study with her and I couldn't find her number. I was thinking, I don't know if it was that morning, but around that time, you know, Kavita, I think we I think musicians, we all have this voice. It's like music doesn't, we don't choose music, but music chooses us. You know, no matter what else you do, uh, there's this little voice in the back of your head that's saying, hey, come back. And there was this voice saying, you know, hey, you're not practicing, you're not, what, what's going on with your music, you know? The doors open and there she was. And it was one of those New York moments, you know, where if I had, if I had, made the light upstairs before getting into the subway. I would have gotten on the previous subway, but then when I got there, the subway had left. So I walked down the platform. You know, there are all these little micro moments. Um, and uh, first she could really relate because she worked in an office for many, many years until her 60s. And she supported herself and her daughter while going out and continuing the music as she could in her life. And she's an example of 
dedication and longevity and someone who never gave up on, on music. So it was also a coincidence because I told her, hey, I'm working in an office, but I'm a musician and I don't know where everything is fitting in. And, um, you know, she was just very encouraging. And then I went to her house and uh, sang for her. And she just gave me a lot of encouragement when I was, you know, trying to find my way. And, it, and, and a feeling that it would all be worth it. It would all somehow work out. This was supposed to be my path. That's incredible. Yeah, I've I've had a couple of encounters like that in my life where you wonder what would have happened if it's just even like you said, just little details. I, I, I remember one time in a club sitting very near some Argentines and I overheard them and I went up to them and started talking and one of them owned a tango club and the other one was a bandoneon player. And this is when I was looking to get into tango so the next thing i know i have a steady gig at the guy's club playing with that bandoneon player and i could have sat anywhere else in the club and not overheard them <laughs> they were there i don't know why they were even in that club you know so i i really like that story of uh, sheila and you um so so you went into into manhattan school of music and you just hearing your music i can tell you got a nice solid grounded music education so yeah, it was very instrumental jazz program uh you know a lot of we we studied there with dave liebman a lot of chromatic harmony it was very heady stuff um but it was great because it kicked my ass and it gave me a very good foundation to have tools to arrange and to broaden a lot what i could hear you know especially as a singer where I would be able to hear more and more and, and be able to do more and more complex music and harmonies. And that's, that's still there in my music, I think. I think the, the, the jazz harmony and the instrumental approach to the voice is, is really important to me. And it's something I got there by just singing all this music that really was never meant to be sung in the first place and challenging myself and my instrument and my ears to an extreme, really. What year did you graduate Manhattan School of Music? Um, 2012, so eight years ago. And, and a couple of years later, you published your first album, Visions. And I can hear a lot of what you're talking about in that album because there's, there is the heady stuff, if you know what you're listening for, um, there's all that heady stuff, but on the other hand, there's this richness of visions. It's almost like a kaleidoscope because you have the chora, you have the tabla, you have the guitar, you have the piano and, and um, the acoustic bass. So all those worlds. And there's a very clever arranger behind this whole thing to blend it. So it seems a very mature work. How, how did it come about when you came out of school? Mm -hmm. I'm, the, I'm the arranger. I know. <laughs> I know, but let's clarify it. Yes, you are the arranger. Yes. Sometimes people, it's funny, it's funny because, you know, Leonel Lueke, who's amazing, produced the album. And so many times people assume that he arranged or composed some things, um, which I think is part of a larger moment we're living. Um, I'll have experiences where people assume that a man is the one that 
arrange like that like a singer or a woman could. oh i i i absolutely get what you're saying it's yeah. it's, it's 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 very important to clarify yeah, so anyway he he did an amazing job uh helping me to kind of see that bigger picture and put it together because i was overwhelmed by it i'm still overwhelmed by it but i'm learning it more to be able to see those different threads and understand how can they fit together which i think he he does amazingly in his music how was that process coming out of school to me what sounds like a very mature album how how did you um how did you decide to do it and what was the process and what was the process when you brought your ideas to lionel you know i think jazz is a complex world and industry and jazz education as well i think unfortunately i had some experiences at msm where i felt the message was that i had to do something ethnic in order to stand out i had to play up my indianness i kind of felt the message was like you can't be a straight ahead jazz singer because of how you look i think that drove me to asking well what is it that i really have to say and what is it that is really unique about my experiences what what is home for me because it's not just being uh, yes i love indian music and i've studied it in my adult life but i'm i didn't grow up as an indian classical musician and i am ultimately a jazz trained musician so how do how do all these things fit together and i think that challenge and that coming up against that wall made me ask well what do i really want and who who am i really what do i have to bring to the table and what do i hear that that is me that's sort of how a lot of the arrangements came out for visions thinking about that contextualizing that bringing in these instruments that i really loved the tabla and the kora and bringing in world music influences from different places but also engaging with American pop um like Joni Mitchell and and Stevie Wonder and the British Sri Lankan artist MIA hip hop artist and just engaging with my roots in many ways my musical roots the the things that really nourished me it happened very naturally and you know when i was thinking of of putting it together i was pretty overwhelmed because it felt very ambitious and like a big idea and when i was looking for a producer lionel's honestly really the only person that came to mind that would understand as you mentioned both the heady part and the you know the kind of jazz side of things as well as the real root side of things that would understand the value of both where one is not greater than the other but they're they're both there they're both important and see that whole vision and and see how it can fit together because i really felt that he does and i do still feel and look up to him very much for how he does that in his own original music and his playing too just bringing all those different elements together so we just connected very quickly immediately he understood that vision very much and i could trust his knowledge and experience with that to help guide me
I want to go back to what you said about sort of sounds like the parting words from Manhattan School of Music telling you not to make an album of, of straight ahead jazz. It seems like in hindsight, it was it was good, bad advice or something, because in a way, I mean, maybe this is why it feels like a mature record to me, because you're you didn't go out and try to do standards and try to out standard the standards. You went in there, but but there is there's definitely a jazz sensitivity in that, like you said, you went for the popular repertoire, you took another look at it, which is you could say what a lot of jazz players have done with the popular repertoire from all the way back from Louis Armstrong. They're always looking at it in a in a funny angle or in, in a way to t twist it, and you're doing a lot of that, and and you brought in your already very expansive scope of knowledge of world music and instruments and, 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 and the sensitivity. So that's why it felt to me like it was not, I just got out of school and I'm trying to figure out what to do kind of record, but a very mature record. In some ways, I already had that part of who I am. I had a lot of life experience and musical experience. I had to go back to school, to MSM, to help you know, hone the fundamentals and become a better writer and arranger and instrumentalist on my instrument. So that's what really the MSM piece helped me with. And there's many great things I got there. And I, and I think it's not just about race. I think, you know, there is a kind of thing of everything has to be avant-garde now. Everything has to be so innovative. And I really went in wanting to be like Sheila. You know, I just wanted to do what Sheila does because she's amazing. Uh, and, and she's innovative. Um, but, but I found my, I, I found my peace with that journey. My last album was an album of standards. It was a bass and voice album with, um, Francois Mouton, but it was sort of, okay, I want to do my standards, but I want to do them in my way. So here's a bass and voice album. Well, which is Sheila had the duo with, with Harvey for so many years. Too, exactly, right? so which was also a tribute to Sheila. And, and Sheila sang with us too um, on two tracks. And, and Francois' mentor, Marcial Solal, played piano on two tracks. And the thing, is, the thing I find really funny about jazz is when you go straight to the source and when you go to this older generation like Sheila, like, like Marcial, you know, who've, who themselves are masters and who've been around the masters, there's no bullshit. And there's no saying you can or can't do, or you have to do this in order to do. It's just straight into the music. That's what I love about jazz. That's what attracted me to it in the first place. Getting that chance to record with them uh, was very special. You know, it, it's always going to be where I came from. It's always going to be my home base. Did you uh, do much performance with that project? Was was it on the road or how? Oh, how a lot, a lot. Francois and I did 50, 60 concerts oh, wow. in the last year and a half, uh, 2018, 2019. We played at festivals. We were in Japan, all over Europe all over the US. Uh, it was great. It was a really, really great experience. 
in contrast to visions and in contrast to a lot of the cultural stuff we're talking about, it was really nice to not have any of those props, shall we say. I'm just there as a voice singing a standard with a bass. There's something very freeing about that. And, and there was a lot of improvisation in that project as well. And we did original music and we did kind of modern standards as well. You know, there, there was still one journalist that somehow made some ethnic connections to this project. Like he said that we, we sang La Vie en Rose, you know, the, the French mm -hmm. classic, and I sang it in French. And, some, and we did it in a samba rhythm. And this journalist said it sounded like a raga, and he somehow compared it <laughs> to the Kama Sutra. So someone, someone will always find something to read into what I do that's somehow performative of my hair, you know, my blood heritage. But overall, it was nice to sort of strip down and take those things away. Whereas in, in visions and in my own work, I have to constantly negotiate those things. And it feels sometimes like I have to explain them. So how does a Indian person speak Portuguese and sing in Spanish and where does this come from and then you you know you have to explain the bio and then it makes sense but it can't just sort of live by itself so it was freeing to get to just be in the voice and express um, without that cultural screen I think this is why I, at one point I, I felt what I said at the beginning that I would not dare put a label on. And, you know, obviously living in New York, it, you're a lot more understandable in a way because, uh, you know, I feel like there's a lot of the reference, uh, you know, you grew up listening to Hot 97 and, and, you know, there's a lot of things that I understand how they're a part of the DNA. And I've, I've raised one of my kids as a musician and, uh, you know, Hot 97 is on one of the presets in the car and, And, you know, and you can't help but, you know, hip hop and jazz and... and It's Hot 97 um, and La Mega, 97. And La Mega, yeah, <laughs> which is right next to it. Right, right, right. That's, yeah, that's the soundtrack. Fly like paper, get high like, catch me on the border, I got visas in my... Come around here, I'll make them all... I think it's not just about New York. That's something my research teach, is, is teaching me and giving me... Um, a sense of validation in who I am, because if you look anywhere in the world, I think about this in terms of my roots. I, my parents grew up in Bombay, big city like New York, very cosmopolitan, melting pot. Their parents grew up in, in rural Gujarat, northwestern India, literally sitting on the Arabian Sea at the nexus of subcontinent, the Arab world, and Africa, and people have been trading there for ever. I think about who did my ancestors see? Did they see the British? Did they see traders from East Africa? Did they see, you know, who, who where was contact uh, happening? And um, how far back does that go? And wherever there's contact and there's trade, there's an exchange of culture and there's an exchange of, of ideas. And we see that all over the world when we look at history. And even in terms of the Black Atlantic, in terms of slavery, northeastern Brazil, which is uh, where you know, most of the slaves were shipped to, in 1800s, 
a lot of slaves actually went back to Africa. There was a reverse migration. There was a community in present-day Ghana called the Tabom community, uh, mm. meaning, you know, Tabom, or it's, it's okay, no. it's cool. It's all good. It's all good. <laughs> and so we're, we're taught and we're fed this idea that migration is a one-way stream. But really, the reality of New York and of multiple layers, multiple identities living together and exchanging, I think is very human and very part of our fabric of our DNA as humans. So when I'm looking across cultures or when I'm thinking about these things, I, I think it's important because it shows to me that my music and my world vision is, is important for other people like me and other people that have this feeling in them and in their own DNA. And it could be, it doesn't have to be that somebody has the same experiences or has traveled as much, but it could be somebody that just appreciates that and understands that and, and is open to those ideas. I think that's more of us than not. And I think that's sort of the country of my music. That's where I belong. And um, that's very empowering. So that's the path I'm, I'm on at the moment. Right, so um, it's almost like cosmopolitanism, which New Yorkers think we invented, has been <laughs> around for for centuries, right? Yeah, um, yeah I, I mean, I'm, I'm from Buenos Aires, and it's a city where, you know, first of all, tango happened because it's a crossroads, and it was a crossroads in its own way. My favorite yeah. short story is, um, is by the Argentine writer um, Cortázar, Julio Cortázar. Uh-huh. It's um, El Axolotl. Do you know that story? No, I don't think so. And, you know, Cortázar lived in Paris uh, for a long right. time. I think he died in Paris, actually. I'm not 100% sure. And Definitely. in the story, he goes, the, 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 the uh, character goes to the aquarium in Paris every day. And he's staring at this fish. And the fish is the axolotl, which is, you know, it's like a Central American or Aztec name. And so right. it's representing kind of this character's roots in a way, this is a transplant. And he goes every day and he stares at the fish and basically at the end of the story, he becomes the fish. He says, ahora yo soy el, el axolotl. Looking to literature, looking to many examples we have of culture, this feeling of exile, whether forced or voluntary, and of borrowing, coming together, Trading, in some cases, it's, it's, it's forced when, it, when we think about slavery um, uh, or indentured servitude. But this is just part of our human condition, I really feel. It's, it's inspiring to me. And it makes me feel not alone, because otherwise you think you're, you're, you're very strange or you're different, because you're constantly told you're not this, or you're not purely this, and you're not purely that, or you don't fit this, this box.
So tell me about Cesaria Evora and how she came into your life and what she did with your life. When I was living in Brazil, uh, I got to see Cesaria Evora perform live, and I I had known her music from before. I knew the you know famous songs. I knew Sodad. I had no idea what Cape Verde was or or really who she was. I just you know I liked that song, and her performance was very captivating. I think a lot of us musicians, when we're coming of age, we have a few of those performances that we hold on to, where there's some sort of deep universal truth about life revealed to us. And for me, she was so herself. She was not trying. She was barefoot on stage. She would drink whiskey. She was not entertaining or smiling or dancing. She was just, hey, this is me. I saw the reverence she commanded from her band, and I saw the power of that sincerity, simplicity, and firmness in her character. I saw the power that had on on the audience, and I felt it. So that touched me very deeply. Not to mention, also the music is very emotional. The morna that she's famous for, you know, a lamentful ballad. It's about saudade, about longing. Getting to know Cape Verde now, it makes perfect sense because it's a very transitory place. It's literally in the smack middle of the Atlantic Ocean, in between the four continents. Many people worked in whaling and shipping in the 1800s on big ships going from Europe to North America or South America or Africa. People have always been coming and going there. Foreigners have been coming and going. It was a, a coal refueling station, the biggest one of, of the British in the 1800s to I think early 1900s. And so it has this transitory feeling to it. And if we think also about the Portuguese empire and diaspora in general, it's a maritime diaspora. There's this ida e volta, you know, coming and going that's kind of inherent and tying into other stories that we've talked about, about migration and leaving behind. In the case of, you know, my family, I, I lost many members of my family in a short time span. My father passed away when I was young and, and my four grandparents passed away within a few years and they all, my grandparents all lived in India. So there was also a sense of rupture from roots and from this past so there's a kind of condition, I think, very common in, in people that have migrated or been far of, of, of longing, torn, in a sense, from your past or from your culture. And I think something in the Morna was like, oh, hey, this is you. <laughs> you know, yeah. this is your life. And that captivated me on a soul level from an early age. But now, now I understand why, but it took me many years to understand why. So... Cape Verde was always this sort of thing in the in the background. I saw a picture of it. It looked beautiful. You know, my husband and I said, we'll always go there. It was this holy grail, like, oh, let's go to Cape Verde uh, one day, you know. And finally we did. In 2016, I went for the first time. And it was the same as, as that day with Sheila, you know. It was like I got there. I was so tired of my phone. I just turned my phone off. I didn't want to see any messages or emails or anything from New York. 
you know, it was surprisingly gorgeous. It is a beautiful island. I went to the island of Salvi Vicente, which is where Cesaria is from. Turns out the place I was staying, without knowing anything, was a block down from where Cesaria lived. You know, the first thing we did was we wanted to buy a guitar because we had heard about the luthiers there. And we were on this three-month trip, and we thought, okay, let's get a guitar, and then we'll have something to, to do and make music with. And, and uh, I went to the music store in the center of town, and I said, where can I get a guitar? They told me to go to this guy, Aniceto Gomez, and how do you get to Aniceto? Can I take the bus? Oh, yeah, just take that bus. Take it to behind the cemetery. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I go to the bus stop. This is all analog, no phones, no, you know. And I think, how the hell am I going to find the bus to go behind the cemetery? And then a bus comes, and it says Cemiterio. So <laughs> we get on the bus, and we said, we're going to behind the cemetery. Can you tell us where that is? And, you know, and then when we got off, he, we asked the bus driver, does he know this, this person? And he led us to someone else. Who, you know, we finally get to Lutier's house. Beautiful, beautiful guitars. And I, I got a little cavaquinho, and I said, I want to learn cavaquinho while I'm here. Do you know someone who can teach me? He said... Well, you know, we have the, the best cavaquinho player here in San Vicente, one of the best cavaquinho players in Cape Verde. His name is Bao. And I said, great. Okay, so, you know, I call up Bao. I said, Aniceto sent me, and I'm from the U.S., and I want to learn cavaquinho. And then it turns out that Bao is, is really the preeminent guitarist of Cape Verdean music and was Cesaria's musical director for a very long time. Within five minutes of playing the cavaquinho with him, I, I quickly realized how amazing this encounter was, and I put it down because I just wanted to sing with him. And that's how my Cape Verdean story started. And it was all like that. I mean, you know, a few days later, I went into a bar. I met my best friend there, who's a jazz musician, who... I guess he knew my music. He had recognized me. So he recognized me in the bar. He said, what are you doing here? You know, then one thing led to the next. Everyone introduces you to someone else. And it's a small place. And it's not pretentious at all. There's no sort of air of I'm someone is famous or not famous. It connected me back to Brazil in the sense of music being really connected to life. One disconnect I feel in New York or in, in the U.S. sometimes is music is this thing we do and we go on stage and there is the separation between us and the audience. But really, if you look at music in a traditional context, and for me that's very connecting, it's kind of seamless with what the place looks like, how people live, what a routine is like. It all kind of comes together. I had that beautiful experience in Cape Verde. I've been going back. I, I got a grant from the Jerome Foundation to study more in depth. And I recorded an album while I was there with Bao. That's going to be called Cape Verdean Blues after the Horace Silver song. Uh, Horace Silver, the great jazz pianist, who his, he, he was originally Cape Verdean. Um, oh, he was? I yes. Didn't know that. Uh, his father, at least. I mean, so so silver was Silva originally. That was changed. Uh -huh. 
And because of the shipping and whaling, there was a very large population, and there still is, of Cape Verdeans in Rhode Island and Massachusetts for over a hundred years. They were hands and, and workers. Um, and so as a result, they, they came to um, the U.S. Paul Gonsalves, who was in the Duke Ellington Orchestra, was uh, Cape Verdean. There, there's quite a few famous Cape Verdean musicians. And is the Cavaquinho a Brazilian import? Is, is that one of those ida y vuelta, uh, back yes. and forth uh, Yes, and, and the interesting thing about Brazil and Cape Verde is because Cape Verde was, and especially this island of Sal Vicente, where Cesarea is from, was the coal refueling station. Ships going from Brazil to Europe or Brazil to Portugal would stop in Cape Verde to refuel. And musicians on the ships would get out. So a lot of the guitar style of playing, for example, in Cape Verde is influenced by Brazilian guitar. It's very fascinating. I mean, talk about cosmopolitan, you know. Your kind of place, I was going to say. <laughs> <Your kind of laughs> place. On this on this <laughs> island, you know, uh, they have this movie theater. It, it unfortunately is just closed down, but it was the oldest movie theater in West Africa. And mm. that kind of thing, you know, where you're you're like, where am I? I'm in an island in the middle of the Atlantic. But the Portuguese have been here, the British have been here, there's a Creole culture here from the mix of slaves. There were, actually, was, it was an uninhabited land when it was colonized by the Portuguese, so slaves were brought from West Africa to Cape Verde. But anyway, you, it's, it's mixing. It's mixing. I've met some people that had grandparents from Goa. Now there's uh, the, the Loja Chinez, the, the Chinese stores coming in and... and <laughs> so <laughs> so it's, fascinating to see your perspective on what's going on now in in the world you would seem a perfect person to be able to thrive in this sort of situation where there is not just uncertainty but there's sort of a new beginning and there's so, so many forces coming to bear there's there's the gender and racial upheaval that seems very transformative right now and uh, particularly for us as musicians this idea that auditoriums and and all the places where we tend to congregate are, are going to be not in existence for a long time. You know, I'm someone who's pretty focused on my projects and my work. I remember at the start of this pandemic, I had to sit back and ask myself, okay, if I could do anything right now, what would I be doing? And it, it's the same list. It's the same projects I'm working on. It's finishing this album of Cape Verdean music and I want to start my own label and do more podcasts and conversations like this about culture. I'm writing music for my quintet. We're going to record later this year. 
when I'm able to focus on the work, you're not, I'm not every day, obviously, because we have so many things thrown at us and so much uncertainty, but I do feel a sense of grounding in the work, you know, and thankfully I have some of those grants to help keep the scope kind of the same in terms of my, my projects for this year. It's nice to have a little break from touring. I was on the road a lot in the past two or three years and it can be grueling. To be honest, I'm, I'm kind of happy to be home. I'm happy to get to work on some ideas I've had for a long time about my work and apply them. I'm doing more looping and playing piano and, and composing and the kind of things that it's, it, it does help to be home and to have a routine. Of course, we have no idea where things are going. Of course, I start to miss really performing for people and being with people. You know, we're all trying to figure this out. I was very pleasantly surprised with the Orihen concert we did last week. I think it was very special to get to have these guests and curate something with musicians from around the world. That is something I couldn't do if it were just my show in Milwaukee or wherever it is. To be able to put this together and connect people to each other and connect audiences to each other and to connect at the same time to people in Asia and South America and Africa and Europe was really very, very special and very heartening and uplifting. It gave me some hope as to different ways to be creative and different ways to connect. You know, I think our industry was in a pretty bad place before this pandemic. Everyone is pretty much breaking even from band leaders to venues to people working in the industry, agents. With the advent of streaming, more digital music, and the way people consume music today is really crushing the livelihood of artists. And this has been going on for several years now. And the model of touring, which is how many of us make, make a living, myself included, is really a dying model. It's based on a model that worked and might have worked for some people a few years ago. First, it was the model of the label, people making revenue from selling music and merchandise. Then it slowly became about touring. And now we can't really see how we can have that kind of revenue as artists and also venues. It's not like when they open, they're going to have all the seats filled, you know, it's, and it's going to be touch and go. Maybe it'll open, then it'll have to close. And, and maybe some venues can't survive this period. It's uh, very negative when you look at it from that perspective, but I think there has to be some opportunity here because there's always going to be a need for art. There's always going to be a need for artists and for that direct connection of having live music and having music in person and having that connection between artists and audience. I feel the model was bad. We were holding on, we were kind of holding on by our teeth to something that wasn't working for us. All I can say is I hope that new ways of connecting and new ways of creating art and new sources of funding come up through all of this. Now, I was meditating on the fact that I fell in love with music through LPs. Talk about technology, I mean, impersonal technology. I was able to feel what somebody recording in Englewood, New Jersey was trying to tell me 
um, and somehow it worked for me. It hooked me for life. So is there? do you think there is a positive side to this gigantic experiment in streaming music? I mean, I absolutely think there's a potential for connection and for quality. I think uh, we're all learning how to do that and getting better at that. I felt, like I said, a lot of connection with this concert. I felt really overwhelmed by that level of warmth, connection, upliftment, joy. I also felt I was able to share something deeper of myself because in a concert, there may not be a space to talk about this aspect of my work, the, the lusophone music and the research. I don't want to be didactic when I'm on stage. So getting a chance to sort of peer into that work and have my colleagues and friends from around the world share as well and take part in that, it was very intimate. It's something that maybe I wouldn't have shared on stage. I think there's certainly potential as a model, but I think that how to monetize it is the main question. Uh, it's nice to do a concert here and there, to work, to connect with your audience, to share something. I also feel a little bit conflicted with the idea of giving away music for free. It is ultimately our work as musicians. Maybe it is giving a concert or giving away something for free, but monetizing in some other way. It's not sustainable for artists to just be making music from their homes and not being paid for it. Yes, there's, there's a bigger argument. I mean, we were obviously dealing with the devaluing of art and, and music before this situation. It seems like there were a lot of avenues that were closing up that at this point seemed quaint, the 19th century uh, ideas of how the arts exist in society and we, and we hadn't found a replacement but there's been so much art and so much music that evidently it's not something that uh, is going to go away and for us artists to try to find a way to to connect with audiences not just for our needs but like you said because this is the way we make a living it's an interesting moment for our for our profession for sure Something you said reminded me of a conversation we had in the Origen Collective, and I think it was the singer Sofia Rey that brought it up, that this sort of local a need for an artist and role for an artist is all the, all the more important now. I think we're all living locally, on foot in many cases. I mean, one of the things I've thought of in the last few weeks is who lives closest to me, who can I meet for a glass of wine outside, and... I think about that in terms of music. How can I directly make music for my community? Or maybe it's an online community. But that role of artist in terms of healing and serving goes back to what I was saying about music being a part of life, a part of the rituals of, of our community and the way we live, where it's not just this formalized thing on stage, but it's really an essential part of understanding who we are and the moments that we're living in. That's why we need music and art. What happens now when that local artist becomes very important? I think there's a lot of potential. There's a lot of interesting moments. Can be scary also. And I am worried about the state of things too and the state of the industry in terms of uh, people being able to survive. We hope for the best and we, we keep going. And that should be a good place to end this podcast, even though the conversation went on, as all good conversations do. 
We heard excerpts from Cavita's compositions Moray, Sodaji, and her arrangement of MIA's Paper Planes from Cavita's album Visions. And of course, La Vie en Rose with Francois Moutin on bass. The Origen podcast was produced by yours truly, Pablo Aslan, for the Origen Collective, a diverse group of New York-based Latinx artists. Please subscribe and visit our archives for more conversations with multifaceted and fascinating artists from all over the pan-Latin world. We'll be back next week, and I'll leave you a coda with the final part of the conversation. It was too good to leave on the cutting floor, and if you got this far, I know you'll enjoy it too. Take care. Thanks for listening. It, it seems to me that the, the concert hall, the, some of these institutions that we've been carrying for a long time, I wonder what's going to happen with symphony orchestras. Who's who's going to say that, uh, you know, Beethoven is an essential worker? Um, you know, but on the other hand, us artists, we do something and then we think of money, uh, you know, like you said at the beginning of the conversation. It's something that is bigger than you and that, that drives you um, to, to do music. Uh, we all spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to then make a living. But the basic impulse we have when we're young and, and these experiences like what you had in the youth chorus and things that mark you for life. And then some of us are lucky enough or tough enough to, um, to continue with these and then figure out the rest. And so it's a, it's a weird value to have because everybody's supposed to first figure out how to make a living and then figure out the rest. But there's obviously something much bigger in there and, and sometimes it feeds from the people who react to what we do. I mean, a lot of times I, I've gone into a performance in a, you know, a state of whatever, sadness or doubt or depression and come out of it with such strength and such energy just from, from just having been there and, and, and play the music for people. I think it goes back to what you're saying about our society's devaluation of arts over time, definitely in my lifetime in New York City compared to what I saw growing up and what, what's available now in the public school system. Something I always found very ironic is, especially when we talk about jazz, I mean, jazz is an indigenous American art form. It's a black American art form born out of a very unique set of socio-historical circumstances that occurred in this country. Um, and what what better way to learn about the history of slavery, the history of racism, the history of many important aspects of life and points of life in our in I mean you look at the history of jazz, you learn about America. To me that should be front and center in our schools. And so hopefully some of these conversations around race and and moving funding around in our cities will funnel some money towards education. But it's also about this valuation of the artist and the role of the artist. You know, if you look at ancient Greek society, where the artist was placed, there is this Greek word techne. It could refer to both a doctor and an artist because they both had a technical capacity that's serving society in the same way. And we've lost that value of understanding and, and really teaching uh, to people how important and fundamental that role and essential, as you say, speaking of essential workers, how essential 
the role of an artist is and, and what that does. I think if you took all the artists away, if you took away music, if you took away visual art and, and other art forms, people would feel the difference and people would know the difference. But people don't understand why because it's not taught and it's not, um, it's not valued and, and understood. Um, so, you know, one thing at a time. <laughs> yeah. No, it's interesting how, you know, advertising, which is the most, you know, naked, cynical, capitalist manipulation we have, uses music. And it's it, true. It's a, there's a, a very important role for music in, in just the, even the shortest little commercial. And we spend a lot of time trying to figure out what music is going to get you to do what you know so obviously uh, and, and and of course visual arts and so many other things that go into crass commercialism because it touches a, a much more intimate fiber i'm gonna let you go because i know you had to um to stop at 520 it's 527 i'm gonna get my hair cut for the right. first time Finally, in, right? in six months <laughs> right. i'm so excited <laughs> Yeah. I've been chopping at mine when it gets ridiculous. I just I just chop some of it, you my, know, just to kind of give a shape to my head that is more or less what I remember. This is my yeah. first my first act of uh, self care. Good, good. All right. Well, I hope there is more of those. Um, so, send me that.